Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cluster bombs. As President Biden heads overseas to shore up support for Ukraine, he says the U.S. will send them a controversial weapon. It was a very difficult decision on my part. But is it the right one? I'll ask House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall and the only House member who voted against the Afghanistan war, Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Next, and party of one, Republicans set a date for the Iowa caucuses where Donald Trump's rivals are trying to gain steam while he zeroes in on his closest opponent. He's got no personality. Does Ron DeSantis have a new plan to turn things around? He is the man to do it. My panel will discuss ahead. Plus, Mercury rising, a record-breaking heat wave blankets the globe. Overseas, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen pushes China on climate. We have a duty to cooperate. But is any country doing enough to stop the climate threat? Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is wondering about long-term consequences just days after announcing his controversial decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine, a weapon his administration once referred to as constituting a potential war crime, President Biden is heading overseas this morning, where he and the larger NATO alliance will face a key test over whether they can remain united as they face down numerous thorny international challenges. Tomorrow, the president starts his trip in the UK, meeting with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, then visiting with newly crowned King Charles III. Then, It's off to Lithuania for what will undoubtedly be the trickiest part of the president's trip. Two days of meetings with key NATO allies over Russia's war in Ukraine. The refusal of NATO members Turkey and Hungary to welcome Sweden into the NATO alliance. Conflicting opinions on curbing China's growing influence. The meeting will require diplomatic deftness with questions about the endgame in Ukraine and just exactly how committed NATO is to Ukraine winning the war. All while dealing with President Volodymyr Zelensky's calls to immediately admit Ukraine into NATO. Zelensky told my colleague Aaron Burnett this week that that decision is entirely up to President Biden. Biden told my colleague Fareed Zakaria that Ukraine is not ready to join NATO. Joining us now to discuss House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall, Republican of Texas. Uh, Chairman McCall, thanks so much for being with us. So one of the biggest subjects on the NATO agenda whether to fast-track Ukraine's push to join NATO. I want you to take a listen to what President Zelensky told my colleague uh, Aaron Burnett this week. The U.S. decide today whether Ukraine will get invited to NATO. This is today's situation, and it's a fact. The majority of the NATO countries support inviting Ukraine to NATO. The majority support. Those who have their doubts look only at President Biden, and he knows that this depends on him. It will be his decision. Do you think President Biden should support an expedited process for Ukraine to join NATO? I think it should be incremental, Jake. I think first, uh, they have to win the counteroffensive. Secondly, uh, have a ceasefire, then negotiate a peace settlement. 
we cannot admit Ukraine in, into NATO immediately. That would put us at war with Russia under Article 5 of the United Nations. So I think, I think what the conversation is going to be about is what security agreements can be put in place with Ukraine as a predicate to uh, perhaps NATO uh, ascension uh, of Ukraine into NATO. But I think it's way too premature to be talking about that. But I do think just the talk about it does provide deterrence against Russia, but we have to be careful uh, in the way we do this. Now, remember back in the Budapest agreement, they gave up all their nuclear weapons uh, to Russia, and then we threw them under the bus with that agreement. If we do another security agreement with NATO, uh, with uh, Ukraine, I'm sorry, uh, it has to be one that's solid, that all of NATO is behind as a security agreement. Uh, the issue of ascension into NATO is a whole different issue. Yeah, you referred to the NATO charter, uh, Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all. So after the Correct. war is over, which presumably is a day that will come at some point, would you then support admitting Ukraine into NATO? Yes, but it would have to be done again incrementally. I think a, a security agreement with Ukraine to lay the predicate down the road, they would have to come up to certain standards within NATO uh, qualifications to be admitted. But I think, if anything, Jake, they've demonstrated a will to fight a will for freedom and democracy against tyranny and oppression. I think they've earned it, uh, but we have to put it on, a, on the right path forward, not an immediate ascension into NATO. So let's talk about cluster bombs, because you've been calling for the U.S. government to give cluster bombs to Ukraine for months, and now President Biden has uh, agreed to do so. Canada, Mexico, all of Western Europe, dozens of other countries, in fact, a majority of countries throughout the globe have all banned cluster bombs because they can cause indiscriminate damage. They can kill civilians, uh, especially later if they fail to detonate. The U.S. Is, is still spending millions cleaning up cluster bombs in Laos from the 1960s. Do you have any reservations about giving cluster bombs to Ukraine? Well, you're right. Uh, Geneva Convention, there are signatories to that convention uh, who do not uh, agree with these munitions. We are not a signatory. Uh, to the Geneva Convention on Cluster Munitions. Neither is Ukraine. And by the way, Russia is dropping uh, with impunity cluster bombs in Ukraine, in the country of Ukraine right now. All the Ukrainians and Zelensky are asking for is to give them the same weapons the Russians have to use in their own country against Russians who are in their own country. They're, they do not want these to be used in Russia they want these as self-defense to use against Russians in their own country of Ukraine. I don't see anything wrong with that because, quite honestly, Jake, as you look at the counteroffensive, it's been slowed tremendously because this administration has been so slow to get the weapons in. These weapons would be a game changer. They are highly effective and particularly hitting flanks of troops um, inside of Ukraine. Uh, they would be a game changer in the counteroffensive. And I'm Really pleased the administration has finally agreed to do this. But lastly, Attackums, my committee, we voted bipartisan uh, to release those Attackums, longer range artillery that can hit the, the Iranian drones in Crimea. And also the F 16s need to get in country as soon as possible to deliver the storm shadows that the UK has put in there as well. But it'll take a while to train the pilots. Uh, but we got to move all this quickly and stop spending so much time. Let's turn to China. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, was just there trying to strike a balance between competition and cooperation with Beijing. She tried to confront China on trade, on manufacturing, on the climate crisis. 
Uh, were you satisfied with the Biden administration's message on this trip? You know, I think I think just to get the meetings, they made a lot of concessions on sanctions and export controls. Uh, I, I would like this to be it is a great power competition. I think she was willing to say we're not in a conflict or in a competition. This is just, you know, we're just trading partners. I think that's a little bit devoid of reality. I think it's good to have diplomacy. I think it's good to have discussions uh, moving forward. But what has China done? Their response is export controls on rare earth minerals. Uh, as a result of this meeting, they're going to cut uh, exports of rare earth minerals to the United States in what would be considered a trade action or a trade embargo. Uh, and this highlights the bigger, great power competition we have with China. First, semiconductors that I took on with the CHIPS Act. Now we got the rare earth minerals. Globally, China controls about 80, 85 percent of those critical minerals. We have to compete with them in every continent, including Africa, South America, Indo-Pacific, and we're not doing adequately uh, so far. Speaking of uh, those special minerals, let's turn to uh, Afghanistan, because it was two Fridays ago uh, when the administration, the Biden administration, chose late Friday afternoon before the long Fourth of July weekend to release a damning Afghanistan report that faulted both the Biden administration and the Trump administration uh, for the disastrous withdrawal Uh, from Afghanistan. I want you to take a listen to President Biden's response to that report. They were demeaned. There was mistakes during the withdrawal and before. No, no, all the evidence is coming back there. Remember what I said about Afghanistan? I said Al-Qaeda would not be there. I said it wouldn't be there. I said we'd get help from the Taliban. What's happening now? What's going on? Read your press. I was right. So just in, in case not, not everybody out there could hear, the question was, do you admit there were mistakes during the withdrawal before? And President Biden said, no, no. All the evidence is coming back. Do you remember what I said about Afghanistan? I said al-Qaeda would not be there. I said it wouldn't be there. I said we'd get help from the Taliban. What's happening now? What's going on? Read your press. I was right. What's your reaction? Uh, it, it's uh, devoid of reality. Jake, it's a little bit uh, eerie that a president of the United States would have so uh, be so disillusioned about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan. The idea that, that al-Qaeda is gone, his own, you know, Secretary of Defense and Joint Chiefs of Staff Milley have said al-Qaeda is on the rise in Afghanistan. He's saying they're gone. He's saying the Taliban are helping us. What happened right after he withdrew? Uh, Zawahiri, you know, the, the, uh, was harbored by the Haqqani network, which is al-Qaeda, essentially. She so got you know, you got uh, Haqqani, the Taliban, uh, harboring Zawahiri al-Qaeda, bin Laden's number two guy in Afghanistan right after the fall. And now he's saying, you know, I was right. The ta- uh, Taliban's helping us and al-Qaeda's gone. I just don't really understand it. It's a bit bizarre to me that a president would be so devoid of his own foreign policy. And he just really wants to sweep Afghanistan under the rug. That report was very damaging found that we should not have abandoned Bagram, where we had over $7 billion of taxpayer weapons left behind that now, by the way, the Taliban are selling to our adversaries like Iran and the Palestinians against Israel. Uh, this is a, a huge foreign policy blunder. You're in Miami right now. Is anybody who's uh, looking at the screen and sees the top right, right uh, bug where it says your location? Um, Tuesday is going to mark two years since protesters in Cuba mm-hmm took to the streets in the largest anti-Cuban government demonstration in a decade. Uh, and then you're in Florida, you say, to meet with Cuban-American activists uh, tomorrow. 
Do you support regime change in Cuba? Do you think that's the only path forward? Well, I, I think we have to be careful in, in uh, South America about regime change. We've had a history of that. I support the people of Cuba. I support them. If they want an uprising against their leadership, uh, we should support them in that effort. I will be with them tomorrow. They're very passionate about their country. They want their country back. They want freedom and democracy in Cuba. And what is happening in Cuba right now? China is in Cuba. We have latest reports now that the Chinese are setting up a spy station in Cuba, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And where am I sitting? Southcom in Miami, CENTCOM, which is Central Command. That's all the Middle East. Southcom is Central and South America, our military. JIADF is our intelligence task force in Key West. All these facilities, Jake, 90 miles away from that tiny island from where I sit right here in Miami, 90 miles that can intercept through Huawei and ZTE and a spy station, our intelligence communications. That is a clear and present danger and a threat to the security of the United States just 90 miles off the coast here. The chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Michael McCall, Republican of Texas. Good to see you, sir. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, thanks for having me. My next guest was famously the only House member to vote against the war in Afghanistan, and now she is warning President Biden he's about to make a mistake in Ukraine. Congresswoman Barbara Lee joins us next. Plus, Casey DeSantis on the campaign trail in a crucial early voting state. Could she help turn around her husband, the Florida governor's seemingly struggling campaign? Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. My next guest was the only member of the House of Representatives after 9-11 to vote against the war in Afghanistan. That was more than two decades ago. And now she is strongly breaking with the Biden administration over its decision to send controversial cluster bombs to Ukraine. She's warning the U.S. shouldn't, quote, stoop to Putin's level, unquote. Joining us now, Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, where she is also running for the uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. So here's how the White House is trying to justify giving Ukraine cluster munitions despite the risk that they pose to civilians. Take a listen. There is also a massive risk of civilian harm if Russian troops and tanks roll over Ukrainian positions and take more Ukrainian territory and subjugate more Ukrainian civilians because Ukraine does not have enough artillery. That is intolerable to us. This is their country they're defending. These are their citizens they're protecting. And they are motivated to use any weapon system they have. What do you think? Do you buy that argument? What's your response? Nice being with you, Jake. Uh, No, cluster bombs uh, should never be used. Uh, That's crossing a line. Uh, Once you see what takes place, we know what takes place in terms of cluster bombs uh, being very dangerous to civilians. Uh, They don't always immediately explode. Uh, Children can step on them. That's a line we should not cross. I think the president's been uh, doing a good job managing uh, this uh, war, uh, this Putin aggressive war against uh, Ukraine, but I think that this uh, should not happen. He had to ask for a waiver under the Foreign Assistance Act just to do it because we have been preventing the use of cluster bombs since, uh, I believe, uh, 2010. So when Putin started using cluster bombs, uh, the Biden White House said uh, that that would potentially be a war crime. Do you think that, therefore, 
the U.S. government, the Biden administration, will potentially be engaging in war crimes if this goes forward? What I think is that uh, we are, would risk losing our moral leadership because when you look at the fact that over 120 countries um, have uh, signed the uh, convention on uh, cluster munitions saying they should never be used, they should never be used. Uh, and in fact, many of us have urged the administration to sign on to this convention. And so I'm hoping that the administration would reconsider this because these are very dangerous um, bombs, they're dangerous weapons, and this is a line that I don't believe uh, we should cross. You notably were the only member of the U.S. House of Representatives to vote against authorizing the war, the war in Afghanistan in 2001. Um, now, of course, a State Department report on the chaotic Afghan withdrawal effort uh, found that the Biden administration failed to prepare for the worst-case scenarios that ultimately many of them came to pass. I, I know you supported the goal of leaving Afghanistan. Do you think President Biden deserves some blame for the way that that withdrawal spiraled out of control? I don't believe the administration deserves any blame for this. We have to remember that uh, Donald Trump made uh, this agreement with the Taliban. Uh, secondly, uh, the Trump administration literally gutted our State Department uh, and our diplomatic corps. I believe that the State Department and those who were involved in this, uh, you know, end of the Afghanistan war, which should have happened uh, before then, I believe, uh, did as, the best they could. But having said that, uh, it wasn't as smooth as we would have liked to have seen it. And in fact, we still have to uh, fund our State Department and our diplomats, uh, just like we're funding uh, the Defense Department. Uh, I believe that had we stayed in Afghanistan, we'd be there another 20 years. There was no military solution. That's why I voted against that overly broad authorization in 2001, which was a 60-word authorization that set the stage for forever wars. Let's turn to the climate crisis, because Thursday the Earth had its warmest average temperature on record since, since uh, scientists began keeping records of this kind of thing. This was the fourth day in a row of record breaking global temperature averages. The U.N. Secretary General says these numbers show that, quote, climate change is out of control, unquote. As someone who represents a state on the front lines of the climate crisis, are there steps do you think that President Biden could be taking right now to combat the climate crisis that he is not taking? This is a, a climate emergency. We see wildfires, we see floods, the hottest days ever in history recently. Uh, and this administration, I think, has done phenomenally well in terms of investments and uh, releasing uh, our uh, investments, business investments, private sector investments to begin to uh, rely on more clean a clean energy economy, making sure that we uh, get away from using fossil fuels and reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Also, making sure that uh, our water and air is clean by the Investments in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the CHIPS Act. And so I think that it's important to recognize that we have done everything. The Biden administration has done everything it can, given the political dynamics of the House and the Senate, that we can do, but we have to do a heck of a lot more. We've got to address environmental uh, 
uh, justice and injustice in communities of color and in low-income and poor communities. I'm working with Congressman uh, Raul Grijalva on an environmental justice bill. But I believe that this administration understands that there are injustices in our own country and have made uh, investments into uh, communities of color to clean up the pollution uh, that we have to deal with each and every day. The health impacts are horrendous. And so we need to do more, but I think that this administration has done a very good job in making investments in our climate emergency. You're out on the campaign trail running for the U.S. Senate. Um, President Biden is traveling the country, extolling his economic policies. Uh, he's calling them Bidenomics. Um, Polls consistently show that a majority of the American people disapprove of the president's handling of the economy. And as you know, and I'm sure you hear from the people out there, they're still hurting from inflation, the high cost of living, income inequality and more. Are you running on Bidenomics or do you understand why so many voters uh, aren't feeling the benefits? The cost of living, um, of course, is, in California is uh, extremely high. The affordability crisis is high. We have record job growth, but yet uh, job growth and wages have not kept up with the cost of living. And what I'm talking about with, with voters and with people throughout the state is, first of all, in the Golden State of California, we have uh, at least 20 million people who are living one paycheck away from poverty. And so we've got to make sure that we uh, reduce the cost of housing. We have a huge unsheltered population. We have to make sure that we provide for child care uh, for women especially who want to get back into the workforce. And we have to make sure that we fight for a living wage for everyone here in California because people cannot afford to continue to live here because the cost of living is so high. And so the president, I believe, has done a remarkable job in, in moving forward uh, this economy and creating more good paying union jobs. But we have a heck of a lot more to do, especially for states which uh, the cost of living is extremely high and the wages have not kept up with what it costs to live in a, a wonderful state such as California. You are running uh, for the U.S. Senate to, to succeed uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, um, who has missed dozens of very important votes during her months-long absence from the Senate earlier this year. Questions about her health and her cognitive abilities, of course, have been circulating for years. Uh, your fellow Californian, Congressman Ro Khanna, has repeatedly called on Feinstein to resign. He, he's not just a, a colleague, he's your campaign co-chair. Uh, does he speak for you when he calls for her to resign? Do you also think she needs to step down? I have said over and over and over again that uh, I, first of all, am most concerned about Senator Feinstein's health. She's uh, back at work and she's doing her job. I am running for uh, the United States Senate. We're building our organizations. We were, organization, we were in the Central Valley last week in Los Angeles and uh, San Diego. And let me tell you, we've been listening. Uh, I've been listening to the challenges that uh, people here in California have of inequality, the cost of living, the cost of housing. That's what's important to me, that people understand that uh, I see them, I hear them, and I'm going to fight for them so that they can have the type of life that uh, Californians all deserve, and that is making sure that they're able to live uh, the California and American dream. That's what I'm doing, listening and explaining to people why I am running and making sure they understand that my experiences, my abilities to uh, negotiate, appropriate, and legislate, which 
have been proven will be very useful for uh, Californians uh, when I'm elected into the Senate. And so I'm excited about this campaign uh, that uh, I'm running in. Right. But does Ro Khanna, who's your campaign co-chair, does he speak for you? Look, first of all, I respect uh, my congressman, my friend, uh, Congressman Ro Khanna. I'm speaking for myself when I say that I hope that uh, Senator Feinstein continues to improve. She is back in Washington, D.C., and uh, she is doing her job. And what I am doing is talking to voters and putting forth my record, my experience, my lived experiences, and connecting with people so that uh, people understand that I'm going to be fighting continuously for them for a better life for everyone. Thank you so much for joining us early in the morning there in California. We appreciate it, Congresswoman. Thank you. A top DeSantis supporter is admitting that Donald Trump is the runaway frontrunner for the Republican nomination. Can a new strategy by the DeSantis team boost his campaign? My panel is next. He became Ron DeSanctimonious to me, and he would be a total disaster. First of all, he's got no personality. You probably found that out because his polls are crashing. I will go out and I will fight for Ron DeSantis, not because he's my husband, that is a part of it, but it's because I believe in him in every ounce of my being. Welcome back to, welcome back to State of the Union. Donald Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis' wife, Casey, on the trail in Iowa, as we learn the Iowa caucuses have a date, January 15th of 2024. My panel uh, joins me now. Doug, let me start with you. You were the communications director for the 2012 GOP Iowa caucus. Donald Trump lost it last yeah. time. Uh, narrowly, but he lost it to Ted Cruz. How do you think things are shaping up out there? Well, we typically say with Iowa that it's not determinative. It's what starts to cull the field. If Donald Trump wins Iowa this time, the field is over. Mm -hmm. So all things are going to come down to Iowa in this case. If Ron DeSantis wins, if Mike Pence is able to 99 county his way into a victory, then we have a wide open race. But if Donald Trump wins Iowa in January, and it's six months and one week to go, so there's a long time, this race, I think, is effectively over. And so I guess what one of the things you're getting at there is the fact that Iowa, is, the Republican electorate is made up so much of evangelical mm -hmm. uh, conservative Christians who Donald Trump had not quite sealed the deal with them in 2016. Uh, how do you think things are going to shape up? Well, I think Doug is right in terms of if Donald Trump wins Iowa, it's over. The question that I have is how many people can still stay in the race until Iowa? You have to fundraise to keep organizers on the ground, to run political ads. And right now, it doesn't seem like a Nikki Haley, a Tim Scott, or is they're really going to make that mark to last for another, what, six or eight months. But I do think if a Mike Pence or a Ron DeSantis could even come close, they might hang on until New Hampshire. But at this point, if they don't close the field pretty soon, it's going to be a Donald Trump walk. -away. And Alyssa, you saw DeSantis' campaign this week. Uh, what did you think, and, and how do you think he's doing? <laughs> you know what? Ron DeSantis plays well in Iowa. I saw him uh, in New Hampshire, not a place where he's uh, quite as popular. And, you know, to Ashley's point, he goes into the race focusing on Iowa, and he actually will have the money and the momentum, I think, to be in for the long haul. But there has been misstep after misstep by his campaign. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to differentiate himself from Trump in something that could, his best point is electability, except he undercuts it with the policies he's running on. Right. He just put out one of arguably the most homophobic ads I've ever seen <laughs> that is literally radioactive to women, college-educated voters. 
every coalition you need to win back to win a general election. So I think he's in the race for the long haul, but I don't know that I see momentum picking up in terms of his polling. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. I, I, I've said this until I was blue in the face, but the more voters meet Ron DeSantis, the less they like him, mm -hmm. which is why I think his wife going on the campaign trail is a value added. Mm -hmm. I have to disagree with Doug slightly. I do believe that the race is over. January 15th, which is King Day. I don't know if anybody finds that ironic that the <laughs> and I was having their primary on King Day, but whatever. Uh, but I, I, I for, the, for the life of me, I cannot believe that uh, no one has actually challenged Donald Trump significantly on issues that truly matter. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a lot of time left. I know you like said what? Like what issues? I, when, you, when you attack Donald Trump, you have to attack him substantively. Mm -hmm. You have to talk about January 6th. You have to talk about character issues. You have to differentiate yourself. Chris Christie's done it very well. Asa Hutchinson, too, and Will Hurd, too. Who? <laughs> so, like, I think that you, I think that my point is that one of these candidates, like a Tim Scott, like a, um, like a Ron DeSantis, if you're going to have credibility in a platform, you have to be willing to hit him to your point, on issues that matter. You cannot out-Trump Donald Trump, is my point. I think the, the word platform here is important. And when I say we have a long time to go, we have a debate in six weeks. And until we have debates, we'll have to see if Donald Trump shows up or not. A lot of this is conjecture and being you know, run online and on TV through ads and so forth. These candidates have to stand next to each other and go after each other. This nomination doesn't go around Donald Trump. It goes through him. Luke Skywalker had to confront Darth Vader these Republican candidates will have to do the and same. I've talked to a number of these Republican candidates, and they're all getting the same advice early on, which is you can't alienate the Trump voters. Don't go after him too much. Go after the policies. The problem with that is they miss the opportunity to differentiate themselves and to define themselves. Nikki Haley, an incredibly talented, politically savvy person, there's not a way to break through because she wasted so much time not going mm -hmm. after Donald Trump. So let's talk about uh, going after Donald Trump because uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, who's also running, is in Iowa. He's putting a lot in Iowa. Uh, and he was asked uh, by a voter about January 6th. By the way, we're, we're expecting the Justice Department to move on possi possible indictments mm -hmm. on the January 6th insurrection. But l listen to what one Iowa voter had to say to Vice President Pence and his response. If it wasn't for your vote, we would not have Joe Biden in the White House. I did exactly what the Constitution of the United States required of me that day. I kept my oath. I'm sorry, ma'am, but that's actually what the Constitution says. No vice president in American history ever asserted the authority that you have been convinced that I had. President Trump was wrong about my authority that day, and he's still wrong. So what do you think? Well, I thought the question that she posed was interesting, is that she disregarded 70 million other people's votes based on Mike Pence's one vote. And that's because Donald Trump and many people in the Republican Party, to be honest, have done a really good job in lying to the American people about the authority. I also think after January 6th, terrible day, people put Mike Pence on a pedestal for doing his job. And so it made him made people feel like if you're drinking the Donald Trump Kool-Aid, that he had more power than he did. As Pence said, every other vice president has done this. So why would I be the exception to the rule? But it's the lies that the, the party has yet to put a stop to, including people in the Republican field right now. I get that it's an extremely low bar. I agree with <laughs> yes. you. But Mike Pence did exactly what you have to do. That answer had moral clarity. It was extremely clear. He said, look, I'm going to lose this one woman's vote for this decently ignorant question, but I'm going to show people that I can lead. And that's what you have to do in this race. 
Now, I don't know if Mike, if this is Mike Pence's time. I disagree with Mike Pence on 99.9% of his policy points, but that's the way that you run for president of the United States. Alyssa, what do you think if there are indictments of Donald Trump uh, and others around him for January 6th for trying to overturn a free and fair election? Do you think that will have any impact on Republican voters? Well, listen, it'll be the third indictment of the former president, and it's um, his numbers have only gone up with prior. It will depend largely on how this field chooses to handle it. And this is what requires moral leadership, is for somebody like a Mike Pence to explain why this matters, for someone like a Nikki Haley. But I don't know that that's what we're going to see. So I would encourage the field, if they're there, cling to that and explain to the public why what he did was so unprecedented and undermined our democracy. All right, everyone stick around. we got another panel coming up, another uh, block of panel coming up. President Joe Biden has joked that he's as old as the United States itself. Will that help diffuse voters' concerns about his age and cognitive abilities heading into 2024? My panel returns right after this quick break. President Joe Biden trying to laugh off concerns about his advanced age headed into 2024. My panel uh, is back with me. Uh, Effective? What do you think? I mean, there are, if you look at polls, people including Democrats, are concerned about his age and his ability to do the job because of his age. Yes, it's a very real concern. That is a fact. Democrats share that concern. But I think also Democrats realize that he's our horse and we got to ride him. So that's first. The second thing is there is an advantage Republicans have when it comes to this 2024 election in terms of this new generation of leadership versus the traditional same old, same old Washington. But after Donald Trump wins Iowa to go back a little bit, that that advantage is also disappearing. But on that, I mean, don't Democrats think that Donald Trump is an existential threat to American democracy? I, I even personally think yes. so. So are, why are we, you guys staking that on the back of an 80-year-old man who everyone has concerns about well, the so, so gain me out on this because I've had this conversation a million <laughs> times. So then what, so what's the alternative? Exactly. What do we do? I mean, you guys can have a nominating process. It would seem like I would think that if you were so worried about the future uh, with Donald Trump as president, again, you guys would put up a better we don't, we don't. I'm we engaging don't, in the primary but, I mean, to try it's, to put it's, someone but up. That's the only detraction. I mean, you have somebody who, and we can get into a policy discussion, but you have somebody who's actually implemented tangible and in many times bipartisan policy positions that many Democrats love. And so I'm not going to retire the horse simply because he's run a few races. Yes. I I think one of the things that's, I'm coming right to you, is one of the things that's motivating him, in addition to the fact that, like, let's be honest, every single president has a very healthy ego. But beyond that, uh, he probably thinks that he, I think he thinks he's the only one that can beat Donald Trump. That like that he would step back today if he thought Vice President Harris or Secretary Buttigieg or whomever could do it. But he thinks that they can. Joe Biden has had a pretty successful term in office. He got infrastructure done. He got bipartisan gun reform done. He got us out of the pandemic with getting vaccines in people's arms. America, he is doing the right thing on Russia and Ukraine and not potentially letting a dictator take over. When you have a record like that, you run again for re-election, and it, every other president has. And the reality is the reason why he thinks he can beat Donald Trump is because he did beat Donald Trump already. And so it's not Democrats' responsibility to put somebody else <laughs> up on the top of the Republican ticket. It's Republican voters to see, yes, Donald Trump is an existential crisis <laughs> to our democracy, so don't nominate him and then let the race play out. 
But like, it's not fair to, and yeah. I agree with Bakari. Yes, people know his age is a problem, but Donald Trump is no spring chicken yeah. either. You know, he's what, four years younger than Joe Biden? Yeah. And those are the two front runners. And, and, and also, Doug, what's interesting is uh, there's the, my favorite group of voters out there mm-hmm. are the double haters. <laughs> they don't like Biden mm-hmm. and they don't like Trump. They're, they're my favorite because they're so important. Mm-hmm. Um, the double haters in 2016 went for Trump yes. over Hillary. The double haters poll right now overwhelmingly for Biden. Yeah. And they don't like either one, but they go, but I'm going to go with the old horse. And that's why we've seen states <laughs> like Georgia and Arizona flip potentially North Carolina this race. But to use the horse race analogy, just one step further. <laughs> We're beating this horse to death. <laughs> this, is, this nomination process is the Whoa. This election <laughs> is very well done. Is, um, is the Belmont Stakes. It's a very long race. And you come at a time where... Joe Biden is at an age where you age faster and in a job where you age faster than any, any oh, other boy, job. That's true. And in your last book, I look forward to reading the new one, you wrote about Frank Sinatra. And yeah. Biden right now reminds me of seeing Frank Sinatra towards the end of his career. One minute, he is crushing my way, mm-hmm. and the next minute, he can't remember the words to come fly with me. And if he has that moment, and it's public and we all see it at a debate or at a speech— Joe Biden and the Democrats have a very real existential problem. Can I just say something on that, though? Yeah. I think people are waiting for that to happen. People have mistakes. We all are on television and sometimes read the wrong line or say the wrong thing. It's what humans do. We're not robots, thank God. Sure. We're not chat BBC. And Biden was pretty gaff-prone before. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I think everyone is putting too much on, like, I don't know, I trip once a week as well. We don't want it to happen. We don't want to see our leaders happen. But that's but also Republicans. But, but, but just one more. I also think that he is... Um, Biden is. Biden is... Handicapped a little bit because for the last two presidents, we have had superstars. Whether you liked, whether you buy a ticket to their show or not, Barack Obama was a once-in-a-lifetime generational leader that you just loved, right? Either you hated him or you loved him. Donald Trump is the same way. That's why 50% of your party still wants him to be president. They're celebrities. Joe Biden is not a celebrity. Joe Biden is a politician. The, but you, the, the bar is also, they, they set the bar extremely low. And I think Republicans make that mistake often. They're like, oh, my God, he's so old that he can't put a sentence together. And then when he sits down with somebody like Fareed Zakaria and is actually coherent, everybody's like, oh, my God, he actually can. So that's you can't lose in this conversation, though, that you have a historically unpopular vice president and vice president Kamala Harris, who's pulling beneath the top of the ticket, Joe Biden. Usually the VP's job is do no harm and give people confidence that you could step in the next day and become president. That could be a drag on that. Someone like me who's a neither sider. That's a drag. I mean, first of all, I got to I got to address the first part. I mean, she's also the first vice president of the United States that doesn't look like any of the other ones that came before her. And so the first woman, the first person to call her. Correct. And the media is struggling and figuring out how to cover her as well as she was trying to figure out how to do the job well. Mm -hmm. And the vice presidency is not a job usually that comes with the glitz and glamour. She's not held to the same standard of Mike Pence. She's not held to the same standard of Joe Biden. So I want to I want to clarify that. All right. Or last. Wonderful conversation. (laughs) Thanks one and all for being here. Coming up next, something I'm proud to share with you all after years of hard work. Stay with us. If you will indulge me for one moment, summer is here, which makes it the perfect time to pick up a new book. And I humbly submit you might like my new thriller, All the Demons Are Here, which comes out Tuesday, and I hope you'll pick up a copy. It takes place in the wild 1970s. The main characters are the kids of the protagonists of my previous two novels, Ike, a Marine who's gone AWOL, he's in Montana, and his sister Lucy, an aspiring journalist in D.C. on the hunt for a serial killer. I tried to interweave all sorts of real people and politicians and events from that era into the mystery and the plot, such as 
70s icon daredevil stuntman Evil Knievel. In the, in the book, Ike works for Evil Knievel. He's on his pit crew in Montana. 1977 is, of course, also the summer of Sam, the infamous serial killer who terrorized New York City. It's a story that helped propel the rise of tabloid journalism in the U.S., which the character Lucy deals with. She works on a tabloid in D.C. owned by a Murdoch-esque magnate. The book includes various 1977 moments, Star Wars, UFO sightings, the opening of Studio 54, a celebrity discotheque that changed New York nightlife. But I also tried to get in how that era was a, a, really a time of great unrest with the New York City blackout and post-Watergate and post-Vietnam War distrust of government. There was a real prevalence of cults and, of course, great sadness surrounding the death of Elvis Presley. I think it's a fun read, and I hope you check it out. All the demons are here it comes out this Tuesday. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria sits down with President Biden. That's right, after this quick break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 